0: Hello and welcome to Rare Nautical Reads with me Chris Stammel-Major. In this episode we're continuing John Caldwell's Desperate Voyage and we're on chapter 20. Chapter 20. Foodless. I sat in the cockpit searching my rough drawn map of the southwest Pacific. I was pondering the sea stretches I would be crossing and guessing upon the advisability of what I was doing. There were still a few birds from land beating about. I was sure that the land was close, but to go on searching over a trackless sea when Pagan's speed was nil and with food gone, water dwindling, and the next land 600 miles away, no, I couldn't afford to risk another day in vain search. The broad Fijian chain of islands was findable. My only safe recourse was to go there and take the lesser of two risks. I had a predominant guide since the dog star Sirius in its east-west march across the heavens "'drives directly over the centre of the Fijis. "'It was my plan to go south till I was under Sirius, "'then west till I struck land. "'There was a beam wind from the east casting up a light chop. "'Pagan sailed easily. "'Now and then she slopped a little water over the rail. "'The spray, for the most part, kept me below in the dark cabin.' Toward late afternoon I remembered a moss-like growth on Pagan's leeward side that had grown during the long traverse from the Galapagos I would have eaten it before now but I was in doubt as to its effects I went on deck and examined it closely its color varied between light and dark green and it was hair-like growing about an inch long in several spots I scraped off a fistful of it and squeezed out its salt water I pushed a part of the salty grass-like wad into my mouth and chewed and swallowed it. It tasted the way grass should taste, sprinkled with salt. It didn't ease the hunger, but it eased the mind. I thought of the half bottle of hair oil and took the weedy stuff below. With a light sprinkling of the oil and a stretch of the imagination, it had a salad-like taste. But when I had eaten the grassy bit, I found the hunger still gnawing. It wouldn't be quieted. There was nothing more to eat, except the moss. I scraped some more of it from the hull, dripped the last of the hair oil over it and chewed it down. Pagan was now foodless. I sipped the last of my ration of water for the day, pumped the bilges and settled in for the night. I waked with the worst hunger pangs yet. The moss without hair oil was unbearable, but I ate enough of it to quiet my hunger callings. However, in a while they came again and devils tormented me all morning. By afternoon, I couldn't stand it longer. I wanted just a bite, just a chew of something to cheat hunger of its grip. There was a last pair of shoes, but when I tuned on a corner of leather, the taste and smell of dye sickened me. I turned to my belt. I took it off and sat holding it in my hands. It was genuine cowhide. I had owned it for years, had worn it in college and all through the war, had worn it through four shipwrecks, Sentimental attachments swelled within me and I put it back on. There was only my wallet of kangaroo hide, a gift of Mary's father. Starvation overcame sentiment in its case and I emptied its contents into my shirt pocket. As with the army shoe, I boiled it, pounded it, cut it into strips. They lasted through the day and the night. I was sitting on deck just at dawn, watching as always for that point on the horizon from which the first birds would come. A small, white seabird, flailing the air with long winds and shrieking loudly, slanted across the bow from what could have been any direction and circled in for a close view of Pagan. I flipped a single cement chunk towards him, more as an afterthought than a serious intent. Bird and rock miraculously converged, a puff of feathers flew up and the victim plummeted into the sea like a crippled plane a bear 30 feet from where I stood. Unlashing its lines, I threw the helm hard down, pagan rounded to, veering into the wind and bearing down on the wad of white. I scooped the downy creature inward. What I did next has been unbelievable to me ever since. Crazed by the thought of food, but more crazed because I had food in my hands, I tore the head from the body in one motion. Thrusting the pulsing stump into my mouth, I drank every particle of its life giving blood. I was an animal who had made a kill, and as the animal will, I went at it tooth and claw. When it no longer yielded a drop, I bit the delicate neck off and chewed it up, bone and all. Before I could stop myself, the greater part of the bird was gone. Even then I couldn't stop. I bit wolfishly into the mass of feathers, tearing at what met the tooth. Whether it was bone or feathers didn't matter. Not one bone of the fowl's body escaped the mill of my teeth. "'Each one I smashed to fine splinters "'and ground to pulp and swallowed. "'I ate his feet as I found them, skin and all went down. "'When I came to the head, I ate everything but the eyebrows. "'His bill chewed like gristle. "'I plucked the larger feathers from the skin "'and started gnawing at the down. "'It resisted like a blanket, but it filled the emptiness "'and cheated the devils of hunger. "'When it was gone, I wished there had been more. "'When I finished my cannibalistic meal, only a few feathers here and there and among my teeth showed that a bird had passed that way. Two days crept tediously past as though they marched on minutes and hour long. I trolled my fish line as ever astern day and night but received no encouragement. The sparse patches of sea moss on the hull were beginning to thin bold in spots. Birds were around and I had a few opportunities to fling missiles at them but somehow there was no longer the former spring in my arm. My shots fell short or went awry. One morning as I came on deck, I saw a ship. When first I sighted it, I thought it was a rowboat on the horizon. But on closer inspection, I made out the top of the stack and the upper reaches of the masts and booms. She was hull down, knifing directly across my bow, a big freighter pitching gracefully into the long swells. I had joyful visions of being towed to Samoa to food and rest. I thought of the masts being re-stepped and re-suited with sails. I could see myself provisioned anew and setting out again for Sydney and to Mary. She was evidently Panama-bound, probably out of Fiji or Brisbane. Her superstructure was barely floating on the rim of the horizon and she was footing it fast. Close though she was, I couldn't make out her tonnage or nationality. She was still dressed in wartime grey. Any minute I expected to see her alter course and swing across wind to me. I scaled the unsturdy mast and blinked my flashlight from the masthead. The mast laboured under my weight. I climbed down. Then I raised and lowered the mainsail. At the time I shouted like a madman. I knew this couldn't be heard, but I yelled just the same. But the big ship swept on with graceful deliberation. Suddenly I thought of a fire. Fires on shipboard are signals of distress. I rushed below and threw a shirt and a dash of the shave lotion into the bucket I lit it from the dwindling supply of matches and carried it onto the forepeak. The ship had passed from the starboard to the port bow, and it hadn't sighted me. I grew frantic as I realised I wasn't going to be seen. I jumped and waved and screamed, and in between I did everything but sink my boat for attention. I dashed astern and changed course so as to keep in sight of the ship. A thick, grey cloud of smoke blew off Pagan's decks from the bucket, rising about twenty feet. The mate on watch must have been figuring out his pay or telling the wheelsman what a great guy he was because a blind man could have seen my signal. I watched helplessly as the ship grew blurry in the distance and dropped below the sea. I stayed on the southeast course instead of reverting to south. It was mid-afternoon before I came across a slick indicating the passage of the ship. I changed course to east and beat upwind following in its track. There was one chance in a million that the vessel might stop or turn back. Also, there was a chance the cook would dump his garbage. When dark came on, I luffed the bow into the wind and dropped off on the port tack to my former course. I wasn't too discouraged. When you are lost, land is where you will find it. I knew I would find it sooner or later. It was a matter of endurance. The next early morning, I did something I should have done before. I painted SOS on both sides of the sails. There was no paint to do it with, I used the pitchy stagnant oil from the engine. I also painted it on the foredeck, the cabin top, and in the cockpit, in case a plane should happen over. There were only the haunting sharks or a lonely bird or two to see it, but it was there, giving an international message to any craft which might pass in my absence from deck. I studied the horizon in a slow sweep, pumped the bilges, and stepped through the hatchway. It was a day of cancerous loneliness. I had long since finished reading the nine books aboard and I had started through them a second time, but it was wearisome trying to read a mystery when I already knew the murderer. One of the books, however, the Bible, from which I read selections each day, became more purposeful as I reread it. It was the kind of mystery where you couldn't know all the clues and where the more you knew, the more mysterious rather than more clear became its significance, a mysteriousness which led me to the value of faith. The gift of the bible out there i needed faith it was the only thread left to cling to it was about this time that the most noticeable effects of my starvation struck me fully my wrist bone i noticed first it stood out like a ping pong ball veins which never before could be seen were now more accentuated by shrinking arms and tightening flesh stood out like miniature molehills my elbows were gaunt and my biceps like eggs Hollows were showing in chest and shoulders, all my ribs could be counted with the eye, and my stomach was a sloping valley between chest and thigh. My hips flared out sharply, and a deepening cavity was evincing itself on the inside of my upper leg. Large, bony knots stood for my knees, but my feet and ankles had swelled to twice their normal size, probably from liquid seeping down from above. They were heavy, and movement about deck was laborious. It was also at this time that the last of the moss gave out on pagan's hull a thorough search of the boat showed that the only eatables aboard were the half box of tea and the half bottle of shaving lotion i put a pinch of tea in my mouth each time i pumped the bilges it helped the shaving lotion i was keeping in case the water should run short the next afternoon the wind changed from east to northeast and grew rapidly in strength the sudden shift put me on the alert and I watched sky and sea critically. I slacked sheets, and for a long time ran before it, making at least two knots. But time came when the danger of being pooped was imminent. I could see a storm was on me, a mild gale was already blowing. I worked the little ship around to where she faced up to the wind and where she was breasting the unrolling seas. I lashed the helm, unbent the mainsail, and stopped it on the boom and mast, and watched her as she stood before the rising weather. She lay comfortably under jib, staysail, and jigger. I pumped her out and I took a look into the wild sky and went below, where I lay in my bunk, absorbing Pagan's reaction to the making weather and waiting. After dark, judging from the noise in the rigging and the angle of heel, the wind came up to gale force. But so long as Pagan could carry sail, she rode easily. I had to pump out every two hours, and it enabled me to keep a close eye on the condition of the sea and wind. I kept my fingers crossed, hoping the wind wouldn't rise. Pagan, in her crippled condition, I was certain could not have weathered another hurricane, even with a hardy crew. The hours were a nervous and physical strain I could ill afford. I lay lashed in my bunk, straining to hear and interpret every new sound. In the dead of night, the little mainmast collapsed. I heard it go down. I trudged out on deck, not realising how weak I was, till I attempted to retrieve the spindly stick from the sea. In a dozen tries, I was unable to grapple it in. The strength just wasn't in my arms. In the end, I pulled it as close aboard as I could by the sheets and passed a double half hitch around the stern post, securing it. With that effort, I was overcome by fatigue. I could easily have slept in exhaustion where I lay, but for the danger of being licked off the railless deck by the sea. I clawed my way on hands and knees into the cockpit. The bilges were in need of pumping. I could feel that need, but I couldn't respond to it. I lowered my tired legs into the confined cabin and flopped onto my pitching bunk. I remember fitting my lashings in place. Then, total blackout. When I came to, water in the cabin was higher than at any time since the first hurricane. For now, I was convinced that I was in another. I was completely drenched. The blanket which I used as a mattress was a sop pad. The cabin was a din of sounds that only water in a confined space can make. How many hours I had slept, I don't know. It was dark. Pagan was pitching and rolling. I presumed that all sail had been torn down by winds and that the heavy seas had crashed down upon the stern, flooding the cabin. A sense of unmitigated futility swept over me, dominated me. I was ready to give up water was nearly washing me off the bunk i knew i could never bail it out i was too far gone the hazard of going on deck to work the pump in hurricane winds was suicidal i felt like lying back and waiting in desperation for the end in complete defeat one rises above fear the mouse will fight a lion when chased to the wall hurricane or no hurricane i was going to pump my bulges dry i had to My boat would founder if I didn't. I took a heavy drink of precious water. A refreshed feeling coursed through me. Taking hold of the comings, I eased my eyes into the night to meet an amazing sight. What I saw wasn't one of the treacherous Fijian hurricanes, but a mild tropical breeze of about Force 3 sloughing out of the south. However, a heavy cross sea was running, which gave Pagan her antic behaviour. My staysail and jib were intact, and the little aftermast was still trailing from the stern post. Above me the skies were a patchwork of peaceful stars. Only the slowly abating rollers gave evidence that a tropical gale had passed. I took heart immediately and set on the pump. The new southern breeze compelled me for the night to lash the stub of Attila with my bow jutting into the southwest. As soon as i had offered up my morning supplications i asked the good captain that i be excused to tend my menial tasks on deck i wanted to get the jigger rigged and holding a pressing sail again as soon as possible seas had moderated and it was simple to pluck from the easy seaway the oar used for mast and with decks steadied by the lush breeze stepping the light spar wasn't difficult with my boat under full sail again my time was my own i pumped the bilges and went below to do my daily reading from the Bible. With a south wind holding, the course stayed at southwest. I didn't tack to maintain a beat into the south, though I needed to make as much southing as possible, for I was still a long way from being far enough south to be under Sirius. Effects of starvation were pronounced. I gave Pagan her lead into the southwest. I had to. Even the little work of tacking sail was rigorous labor to me, and a drain on my body moisture. To me, land was where I could find it. As always, my wicked intuition indulged me, and it said, go southwest. I hadn't eaten for five days. Five days and no food. And I can remember when I belly ate if I missed a meal. The sustained fast enabled my stomach juices to partially hibernate, and my nights were less harassed by frightful dreams. But the quest for food went on. I occasionally got a shot at a bird, but my strength and judgment had ebbed till I couldn't have hit the broadside of a barn if I had been leaning against it. The fish line was ever astern, but old Death and his wary protégés snubbed at it disdainfully. The sharks, now increased to some five or six in number, showed it even less attention. Their interest centred on the limping craft, and in a very strong way I felt that they were particularly interested in me. I was still navigating by the stars and sun, working ever south till I could look up the mast and sight Sirius dead overhead. When the day came, I intended to probe westward for land, whatever reared above the sea. I went on deck at daylight to be confronted with, of all things, an island. It was no cloud, I saw this time. From the first glance, there was no mistaking its identity as land. It lay broad on the port bow, a low island, longer than it was wide, A volcano on the summit emitted a dark curtain of fast-flowing smoke. Its outlines were bleak because of overcast and a growing wind which pushed a scud in front over the horizon. The island looked prosperous, a sure sign of habitation. Rescue this time was certain, but I determined from the first not to be hasty and careless, remembering that infinitely more seamen have perished in getting ashore than have on the reaches of the open sea. On the sea a boat can float and it is safe but in crossing the reefs to the lagoon or pounding through the surf to a beach, a boat can be dashed and its crew overwhelmed and drowned. Also, another manifest danger to the seaman is the often unconquerable distances necessary to travel once he is safe on shore, often over entangled, infested terrain to find help and food. Then too, the hungry, thirsty, exposed seaman must remember to nibble and sip his first food and water or run the risk of violent death when he is most safe. All these things I thought of as I gazed on the dark green paradise that would soon be mine. I thought too of the huge joy of eating again. I saw myself racing into coconut groves, clawing down the green drinking nuts and fattening on their soft meat and cool milk. I visualised groves of bananas growing to the water's edge, and I languished on the thought of eating and sleeping at their roots. Delicious juices suddenly flowed in my mouth as the devils of hunger prodded me. I changed course, beating as high on the wind as possible, and kept the island on the bow so it bore directly southeast. I made for its closest point. Chapter 21. Starvation and land. I wondered what land it could be. I sat before my guesswork map in the cockpit and studied the scratched-out pattern of sea and islands, and by process of elimination, I checked off one island at a time until there was left only the possibility of its being some northerly point of Fiji. It was a most difficult assumption to make because, first, I wasn't certain of the exact positions of the island groups in the area, and second, I knew little of the layout of islands in the groups themselves. It was pure speculation of the crudest kind. It was based on guessed figures of my speed and the speed and direction of the current. I re-estimated my speed under jury rig at everything from 20 to 50 miles per day. In the end, all things taken together, I settled on 35 miles. Thus, by figuring my speed after the hurricane at 35 miles a day, I had covered somewhere near 700 miles in the 21 days before turning south. Add another 150 miles again, purely a guess, for current and various kinds of westward driftage in the nine days since pointing into the south, and I was well on toward Australia. It was sensible to me, then, under these particular circumstances, to assume from my disproportioned chart that a line drawn south from a point 850 miles west of the Suvorovs would run through the western Fiji's, and that this land on my bow was part of that group. This assumption, as anyone knows, was a mistaken one, but as I say, under the circumstances that I made it, it seemed valid. Thus I figured the isle before me was the last for another 600 miles to the primitive New Hebrides islands just east and north of New Caledonia. Making this island was a matter of life and death. I doubted seriously whether I could survive another 600 miles with a quarter and a half of water left aboard and the growing burden of keeping up the pumping, but the hazard of sailing it with the hurricane season underway was the most compelling thought of all. I was about four miles offshore. I shaped my course so as to reach up to the western point of the island. I was close enough from the very beginning to see tangled vegetation on the lower slopes. I thought of mangoes and pawpaws and cool, refreshing, healthful pineapples. Beautiful hunger feelings tingled through me, tickled me and tortured me, and I had to find something to busy myself with so I wouldn't think of food. I readied the anchor to be pushed off the railless decks. There were hints of palm trees on the shore, but no sign of a village. I stood on the cabin, holding to the short mast, searching for a suitable anchorage. Hours dragged by with torturing slowness. The sun climbed along its wanted arc to high noon. I had hoped to be in before then, anchored or beached and on the quest for food. There was something amiss with my calculated approach. I was not closing in properly. After six hours of sailing, I should have been through the reef and safe in the lagoon. Instead, I was directly west of the island, beating hopelessly into the wind. It was evident that my sail area was too small to make any headway. I was actually falling back from the island, losing ground. By late afternoon, wind and current had driven me well back. I climbed to the masthead, searching for a sign of life to appeal to, but saw nothing. The shoreline was no longer visible. The vegetation and barren upland spots began to blend as one. I was hoping that someone yet might sight me and set off. I retouched the SOS signs with the foul oil from the dead engine. Up to dark, no sails broke the horizon. When night closed in, I could see no lights. For hours I lay on the useless course blinking my weakening flashlight into the low clouds overhead and in a full circle around the horizon. There was always a chance that my spark of light might be picked up and answered flashbob up on the horizon. Finally, when my light grew so weak that I could hardly see it myself, I gave up. The island had completely hidden itself in the enveloping dark, and it was lost to me. To tarry was fruitless and dangerous. There was nothing to do but turn back to my search for land farther west. I dreaded the thought. Of having to cross the landless sea west of Fiji to the New Hebrides. That expanse seemed endless as I envisioned it in terms of sips of water, hours of drudgery at the pump and a wet sack. It's your own fault, I told myself. You didn't have to come out here. Nobody pushed you out of Panama so shut up. I set a new course of west by south that I felt should get me to the southern New Hebrides with good weather in 15 or 16 days. I pumped Pagan out and went below, wanting day to come so I could consult my map. Also, I cut the ration of water to less than a half pint. At daylight, I was on deck for a look at the crude chart etched in the cockpit floor. The next few hours I spent in conjecture over my chances of making the grade with a quarter and a half of water. There was water for eight days, possibly nine. I was 15 days from the New Hebrides. That is, if I could make it in 15 days, which meant I would be at least six days without water. Humanly impossible. For the first time in my life, I had a long-term look at death. i had never before had an opportunity to look it in its face. But now it was before me, and I had a whole week ahead of me to get chummy with it. To my way of thinking, now, death isn't really a dread beast unless you have time to think about it. To be in the presence of death and to have a long-term contract with it are two different things. You can be torpedoed on a ship and be in the presence of death. You can be bombed and set on fire and be in the presence of death. You can be strafed in a lifeboat or under sub-attack in a convoy. A lot of things can happen where you are in the presence of death. But death in such a presence hasn't a sense of finality or a sense of this is the end the extreme activity and excitement of action deprive it of that. One can't conceive of death unless it is actually distant. Strangely, I never once really believed I was going to die. However, I will admit, I used often to stare stolidly over the restless floor of the blue ocean and ask, am I going to perish alone out here on the sea? If I thought of death seriously, it is because I toyed with an idea new to me. It never pressed me. My desire, my desire, My strength to go on living was too strong. I had too much to live for. I had overcome too many obstacles. I'm too young to die, I said, and I believed it. My new faith in God and prayer, thus my new faith in myself, made life something I wanted badly enough, like wanting to see Mary. Coming on deck in the morning, I saw a seaman's nightmare. Pagan was dismasted again. Only the mizzen stood. The main and head sails were down across the decks. The shroud stays and masts trailed in the water like bedraggled hair. The rigging, evidently taxed to extreme in the day of beating vainly into the wind and sea for the island, in its tiredness had collapsed in the night. The hard work of re the mast, of refitting the rigging, loaded my mind. Working constantly at the pump had fined me down at an alarming rate. I dreaded the work. It all smacked off but I took a sip of precious water and got started. I dragged the old masterboard and sawed it flush where it had snapped at the deck and shaved it flat on one side at the base for re-stepping. It was now only 10 feet long. I shortened the shrouds and stays and made the little mast ready to be stepped. The effort so depleted me that I was forced to lie down before continuing. After resting, I started the arduous task. I raised the mast as nearly straight up and down as strength would allow, and thrust it toward the opening in the deck to step it. It missed, by an inch, sliding against the cabin, overbalancing me and crashing from my shoulder. Again, I rested. The next attempt to stand my mast found me atop the cabin, staggering beneath the clumsy spar. I tried to drop it straight down into the opening. The closest I could manage the butt end of the top heavy stick to the deck hole was six inches. My strength was gone. The exertion left me too weak to stand, I slumped to the deck and lay in a heap, puffing with short breaths. I thought maybe if I shortened the spar it would be lighter, more manageable. I decided against it, because I needed maximum sail up. The mainsail, even on the 12-foot mast, was nearly as small as the jigger, which looked like a pillow slip. I went below and fell on my bunk. When I came out again I felt fresher, but in two tries to step the mast I failed miserably. The last effort missed the hole by a foot. Dejection and fatigue swept over me anew. I went below to rest. I intended to make one more try before shortening the mast. I awakened sometime in the afternoon, still weak from the labours of the morning. I took a sip of water. As it coursed down my throat, I felt a return of strength. Putting the water flask back, I saw the shave lotion. I opened it, sniffed it. It was unbearable. Throwing my head back, I downed a hearty portion of what remained of it. As I capped it, I felt an electric sort of surge through my body. The next thing I knew I was walking over the deck and before I realised what I had done, I had jerked the mast off the deck, had pointed it up like a broom handle and it was stepped. Everything I did in the next hour was effortless. I lashed the mast in place at the heel, set the shrouds and stays, hoisted all sail, lashed the helm a Lee. I felt boundless. I even felt like diving over and giving one of the sharks a bad time. Under her shortened sail, Pagan took more time to move. She was sluggish but as she was driven and as she gained her cruising speed she tilted slightly before the southern wind. Soon I was plodding along at something less than a knot. For the next two days I slept 18 of each 24-hour period rising only to pump out or to sip my drops of water or read from the bible. Bad dreams slacked off as general apathy set in. I was a broken robot capable of only a few simple actions. When I finally did come out of hibernation, it wasn't because I returned to my old self. I never felt the same again after the strenuous day with the mast. Working the pump henceforth became a trial, a far cry from the days when I dried the bilges in fifty long quick strokes. Now I had to pump with one hand for a dozen strokes, then with the other. A hundred movements often failed to clear out the leakage. Halfway through each pumping, I lay sprawled in the cockpit to rest. Each day, I read from the Bible more assiduously, found more and more solace in prayer and gave more time to it. I learned the 23rd Psalm by heart and spoke it every rising and sleeping, and often in the night as I heaved at the pump. As well, I learned the Ten Commandments and many other scriptures. My Bible, a gift of my grandpa when I was a boy, I never read a chapter of. Aboard pagan, I read it cover to cover twice, devouring its words, searching out its comforts. I should have gone insane had I not had the comforting solace of my Baptist teaching. Men who sail small boats know the verity of the good captain who piloted my boat. Atheism with me had been an old story. I picked up a good background for it at college. Later, in the war, my experiences at sea, and in particular the invasion of Algiers in 1942, strengthened my unbelief. I saw strange and bewildering things. I shall never forget the trains of wounded soldiers in Algiers just after its capture, German, French, English, Italian, American, all together, their wounds making them brothers. Air raids, submarine alerts and miles of white crosses, all in a few days. Aboard Pagan, the petty arguments of college atheism dissolved in the light of faith and the crucial practicality of godly love under the touchstone of vital need and vital want the test proves the argument only conjectures the test is a full measure the argument a half measure i smile when i meet atheists all my experiences of civilian life in depression america and in the war proved a pattern a direct groundwork from my meditations alone in the west pacific i cannot agree with laplace that there is no need in this world for the hypothesis of a creator that afternoon of October the twelfth, while I slept to fortify my thinning bones, I heard a heavy thud on the starboard hull. It felt solid enough to be the lip of a reef. I thought I might have clipped a part of it in skirting it. I hurried feebly out on deck and looked around. Near the bow and on the sea surface, ploughed a high, sharp fin—a new fin from any I had seen before, a new arrival to the school of sharks that loafed constantly in the wake. He turned back to the stern and slid fearlessly along the hull, a foot off, pushing himself with a single effort. He glided amidships and swung his ponderous body gruffly against the planking. Pagan shivered. He wandered gracefully off a beam, then came again. Seeing me moving on deck, he waddled close in and eyed me almost humanly with small pig's eyes, only a few feet away. There we were, eyeing each other each wondering how to eat the other. He, the picture of tropical violence, and I, gone scrawny and desperate. A most wonderful feeling crept over me. Here was my chance. None of the smaller sharks had dared venture so close. His careless nearness gave me every advantage of the harpooner. The trouble was, I had no harpoon. My little fish spear would only tickle him, but I was full of ideas. If there was only something aboard to make a heavy spear from, I knew that if I could get something big enough into him in a vital spot, he was mine. There were meat and blood enough in him to see me through to the Hebrides. There was at the least a quart of fresh blood I could draw out of him, enough to last five days. I relished the strength it would give me. I could dry his half ton of meat, and with plenty to eat, I would make out with a quarter pint of water daily. It would be a tight squeeze, but it could be done. In the bilge, I found an old steel file. Under the forepeak was my hacksaw, rusted over, but usable. Beneath my bunk lay an eight-inch strip of cold-rolled steel, one inch wide, a quarter-inch thick. From the workable piece of soft iron, I envisaged a wicked killing spear. How long would the making take, and how long would the shark be around? The work, as I cut it out in my mind, could be done the next afternoon if my endurance could hold out. As for the shark... If he were like the others in the wake, he would be hovering close astern for days. The material I was working with was comparatively soft. However, I realised that hacksawing and filing it into shape would wear down my last reserves. The whole venture was a vast gamble, a gamble I was fortunate to have. I marked the rough outline of a heavily barbed spearhead on the section of steel. I commenced the long task of driving the saw, stroke by stroke, along each mark. I watched the ceiling as I worked so I wouldn't see the slow progress of the cutting. Each time I looked down, I tried to be surprised at the few hair's wits I had bitten away. My thoughts turned to the kill I would soon be making and the heavy feast to follow. Hunger juices flowed into the dryness of my throat and eased my pains. The devils of appetite returned to pagan. It was late afternoon before I finished cutting out the rough outline of the spearhead. I took a recuperative sleep. Before I could work in the afternoon, I had to overstep my ration of water. I drank a half pint, but I felt it a worthy risk, since a heavy feast of meat and blood was in the offing. By nightfall, I had notched in four small niches on the upper part of the spearhead, so it could be screwed and bound to its handle. I was too worn and weak to begin the filing of the spear point, that would start the next morning. I went to bed early, to sleep hard so that I could hasten my labours on the dawn. But it wasn't easy to sleep hard. Exquisite hunger played tricks with my dreams and horrible nightmares set me to rolling in discomfort on my bunk. My stomach knotted up and wouldn't leave me in peace. It needed food, and if not that, at least something that could be swallowed. Every last edible was gone. I thought of pages from my books, but i had tried that before, and it had created unbearable problems of the bowels. Then I remembered the oil in the engine. I groped out into the night, down into the stern compartment, and loosed the plug to the engine crankshaft. I drained off what seemed a half pint of gurgling liquid, and returned to the cabin. With my finger, I stirred the thick, gritty liquid that had seen many trips through Pagan's engine, and made ready to drink it down. There are people who wonder and doubt how far a man will go when he is hungry, They are those, I claim, who have never been hungry. By hungry, I don't refer to the foodlessness of a day or even a week. Desperate hunger doesn't come until one has starved for at least two weeks and this is best achieved after about a month of semi-starvation. I turned the pan up and drank deeply and quickly. My throat was outraged. My stomach revolted. I blustered and nearly vomited. My head spun in a light swim and I grew faint and drowsy. I remember settling back and I remember the knots tightening in my stomach and the faraway ringing in my ears that seemed to come close and go away again and I dreamed I was in the cockpit peering over my roughly-hued map. I was estimating my position anew and when I shifted the nail and pounded it in again I found myself in Sydney Harbour. There was the Harbour Bridge and the skyline of King's Cross and the Manly Ferry steaming into Circular Quay. Then I wakened. The same darkness, the same slapping of water in the bilges, the same soughing of wind in the rigging, the same feeling of a weak stomach. Before daylight, though I felt slightly queasy, I pumped the bilges at a regular interval, then I stayed out on deck to work. In the waning dark, I scraped at the spear points with a small file. Hour on hour, I wore away at the weapon, sprinkling mites of steel on my swollen feet. By mid-morning, it showed a cruel, knife-edged point and two jagged flanges. Before noon, It was a formidable weapon heavy unbreakable sinister i looked past it to the shark whose fin lazed carelessly above the water and who periodically glided up to the bilges and thwacked them sharply i had nothing at hand for a shaft to use as a helve for the spearhead the last of the oars had gone into the mizzenmast shark spearing at the moment had priority over sailing so down came the little mizzen with four heavy screws I tightened the spearhead to the long oar handle. In addition, I bound it with a wrapping of shroud wire. In the opposite end of the shaft, I drilled a hole with my knife. Through the hole, I passed and secured 50 feet of line, bending it to the heavy cleat at the cockpit combing. I was ready to spear my shark. But first, I went below and slept a few hours. The shark was off the beam, basking on the surface. I stirred the water a bit. He spread the top of the sea with his heavy thin, thrusting it high, and sped straight in for me. Seeing me, he pulled up short and gave me the once-over. We sized each other up and squared off. With a thrust of his powerful body, he moved up within a few feet of the planking. He stopped in utter defiance, nosing at the hull, loitering purposely. He turned lazily and moved a foot or two toward the bow. Exposed to me was his whole side. A greater favour, the harpooner couldn't ask. I swung the spear up, ready to drive it down. I braced myself for the shock that would come. I saw a likely point midway between the dorsal and ventral fins. Bone, flesh, vital organs lay there, everything to bed a spear in. I glued my eyes to his open flank and drove the spear hard down. The blade hit what felt like rock, but it penetrated. The shark lurched in a spasm. I was shoved upward off my feet. I held to the spear and thrust it back. The great fish thrashed and writhed. I felt the spear push deep into his flesh. My hold weakened and I lost it. I crumpled into the cockpit. I saw the rope paying out into a frothy wake that broke beamward for room. He lunged at the end of the line, tautening it with a slam. He spun around, plunged, and I couldn't see him for the boiling he made but I could feel his might as the decks jerked. He flailed the surface white. Tail up, he fought his way downward, curving back toward the boat. As slack showed in the line, I took it in and twisted it around the cleat. The shark shot under the keel, coming up on the opposite bow. When he flailed in that quarter, he plunged again. I sat down watching his useless battlings against death. I knew the spear had a killing hold in his vitals. When his blood gave out, he would come to terms. I waited and watched for weakness. In a moment, I saw its sure signs. He lay on the surface, wallowing gracelessly. I led the slack line between two cleats, wrapping it round and round and taking it slack whenever I found it. The shark was stirring only feebly as I dragged him in. Suddenly, with explosive fury, he shot to the end of the line. I held the line I had taken in so it couldn't pay out. In a moment, he grew limp. I was pulling him in again. He felt like dead weight. Then again he came to life or so it seemed and in an explosive movement bolted away and then again quite suddenly relaxed. I watched him closely as I towed him in. Another shark was entangled in the line. The other shark was towing him. The other shark couldn't untangle himself. I tried to pull in more line to get another bite on the cleat. Then a second shark fouled himself with the line. Once more the line yanked tight. At that moment I saw everything. The sharks weren't entangled in the line. They were tearing at the carcass of my shark. They were eating it. A third and fourth shark darted into the death feast. I heaved frantically and whenever the line showed slack, I wrapped it with mad haste around the cleat. I grew so weak I had to sit down, but I still worked at the line. Every pound of flesh the gluttonous pack was tearing off the carcass was vital to my chance of life. I was fighting for my life. I worked the great shark to within 20 feet of the rail. One of the greedy pack bit into the tail of my shark, spinning him around in a half circle and racing with him to the bow till the line grew tight. There I could hear a terrifying snapping of jaws as the four set on him, ripping at him and hastening to rip apart. Great holes showed in my shark as he was thrust and pushed and torn. I worked the mutilated mass of sagged flesh as close in as possible. The thing now was to hook him at the gills and somehow get him on board. I went below for the grappling hook and hurried back. The four sharks were jaw deep into the carcass, each thrusting back and tearing from side to side, pulling in opposite directions. The big shark was bent S shaped. Rusty, blood filled water nearly hid the heads of his attackers. Like hungry hogs, they were eye deep into the killed victim. I jabbed my little barbed fish spear hilt deep into the head of the shark nearest me. He was oblivious to the sharp, cold steel. I tried to fit the grappling hook into the gills of the dismembered victim but weakness felled my arms to my sides. The grisly feast dropped down to keel depth and then it dropped beneath the keel to Pagan's other side. The line was short, the oar caught against the keel and planking. The extreme pressure was bending it. Through the sole of my feet on the deckboards I could feel the vibrations of the strained oar. I peered over to see what was happening. From out of the water came a muffled snap. My oar bobbed to the surface, it had snapped off just above the spearhead. I moved to the other beam in consternation and below me, gradually sinking into the hiding waters, was the gory feast. I watched it glimmer and when it no longer glimmered, I fell back on the deckboards and lost myself in remorse. I have never been at a lower moment in my life. I reset Pagan on her westward course, laboured with the bilge pump and went below. I slept all afternoon and all night two days of sore trial slid past. Nothing more exciting than the change of night and day occurred. Physically, I spent them as a vegetable would have, except that I pumped the bilges and stared for pained hours at the shapeless horizons. Mostly, I slept or talked to myself. I was tired of the silence. I spoke to hear my voice. There was an inevitable morning I dreaded to see come. I awakened with less than a half pint of water aboard, one day's ration. After my usual morning prayers, I wet my tongue and crawled on deck to do the pumping. I discovered as I watched the slow motion of my hand at the pump that I had lost my wedding band. My fingers, thin as reef points, were too skinless to hold a ring. I struggled with the pump and went below to read the Bible, but soon found that the exertion and excitement of the shark battle had overtaxed me. I was still so overcome that my feeling... My seeing and my thinking were fogged over. I could no longer remember what I was reading. What I read I couldn't recall, not a single thought or a word of it. My mind was blank. I couldn't think straight. I wanted only to sit and stare out the one good porthole. In fact, I got so bad that I couldn't even philosophise about the tough time I was having. And that's bad. But I managed to get out every hour and pump the bilges. By late afternoon, I had taken several sips of water to tide me through the day. There was one sip left to see me through pumping out in the middle of the night. That night, a high wind sprung out of the east. For hours, I drove along before it to westward. In the early hours of the next morning, it grew ungovernable. I took the last sip of water, crawled out to drop the main, and lay hove-to on the starboard tack. Water was now gone. There were hundreds of miles yet to go to land nearly two weeks sailing time but there was a flame still going inside burning on the skimpiest of fuel a low scud sailed overhead it left a dampness in the air but no real promise of rain i wasn't discouraged i knew that something would come along either rain or an island or a ship to tow me to safe harbor later in the night the wind abated noticeably. the skies cleared I crawled to the foredeck and hoisted the tiny main. Clambering back, I swung my boat on her former course. The effort weakened me so much that I was unable to pump out. I went below to a wet bunk. At daylight, I managed to get the bilges dry. I was never able, not once after that, to work the pump long enough at a single stretch to see Pagan's bilges dry again. Thereafter, I could only pump till I was tired, then quit. I looked into the cloudy sky. No hint of rain. During the night, I had thought of a scheme to condense fresh water from salt. I had a small oil can with a spout. I filled it from over the side, fired the primus, set it to boil. The hole in the top of the can was capped so that steam would issue from the spout. If I could somehow trap that steam, I would have fresh water. I rigged a curved sheet of tin so that the steam could strike it and give off the yield, if any, in a dish. Eventually, a drop fell in. I blotted it up with my dry, swollen tongue and awaited the next. In an hour, my Rube Goldberg contraction netted many dozen offerings, a tablespoon of water for an hour's agitation of futile hope. I held doggedly on throughout the morning. By noon, I was worn ragged, but my mouth was no longer dry. The worst was over till the next day. I pumped the bilges a while and crawled into my blanket for the afternoon. Then, unexpectedly, rain came. I heard it beating on the decks. A heavy black squall moved with the slacking wind from the east. I knew what it meant and ran on deck. I spread my woolen blanket over the deckhouse and cleaned the dirt from the cockpit. The squall, not the first I had seen, but the first that had touched me since the hurricane, worked directly over me. Large droplets hosed down the boat. I washed the crusted salt from my skin and out of my beard. I drank hoggishly of the water standing on the deck scooping it into my mouth by handfuls when the blanket was saturated i twisted it dry clearing it of salt i let it soak again then squeezed it over the bucket i had time to wring it twice before the squall passed a half gallon of water there was a gallon lodged in the cockpit a gallon and a half of water i felt like a king I put myself instantly on a ration of a pint and a half per day. It seemed wasteful to drink so much water in a day. The high wind helped for all day and night and blew itself out with daylight when I hit the corners of two howling squalls that set me bouncing. Once they passed, I was left drifting in a flat calm. The sun came up on a glassy sea. I said my long morning prayers and turned to my Bible reading. But despite an increased ration of water, my mind didn't clear up. I couldn't remember what I had read a minute after reading it. I sat staring out the porthole, waiting for strength and the inspiration to pump some of the water from the bilges. Finally, I went on deck and found a comfortable spot in the shade of the mizzen and watched the sharks and dolphins. Out on the beam flapping over the windless sea was a cluster of birds. I thought I recognised land birds amongst them, but since I was at least 200 miles from land, I discarded the observation. Some of the birds came in close. A chronic exhaustion, too enervating to permit me to care about the birds, had hold of me. I couldn't move to challenge them. My dead brain couldn't produce a means to challenge them. I dared not exert myself in another strenuous gamble for food. One more physical strain, and I was finished. I knew that. I worked at the pump till I could pump no more, then went below to sleep. Sleep came simply and easily. I slept in childlike obliviousness till the rising water slopped into my bunk. Then I went out and pumped again, till again I could stand no more. So it went. When the calm still held the next morning, I decided to cut the water ration into a pint. The calm vexed me and wore at me constantly. Surely this afternoon there'll be a wind, I thought. The afternoon aged. Out on the sea, the birds screamed for wind. When the wind blows, the flying fish take to the air, while chased by the dolphin and their other underwater enemies. During the calms, they seek other areas in which there is wind, where they have a fighting chance. Thus the wind aids many of those living in and out of the sea to thrive. The lean dolphin hadn't eaten in two days. Old Death and his boys spent most of their time discussing the weather, as did the birds and I. The arrival of the next day, the third consecutive day of perplexing calm, was proclaimed by the plaintive cries of hungry seabirds. I came on deck, not believing it possible that it could still be a calm, but there it was. The sea was like a placid lake, hardly a shadow showed on the surface. The sails were as limp as death, not a breath stirred. I didn't like it. These prolonged calms are often the harbingers of hurricanes. I pumped for what seemed an hour till the water was down to the floorboards and lowered my club-like weighted feet into the hold to stare out from the porthole into the impersonal sea, and fret. When dark came, and still no breeze, I went on deck to pray. I took the part of spokesman for the fish and birds, hands clasped on the cabin, gaunt knees on the deck and puffed feet protruding outboard, a position and state I never dreamed I would ever be in. I knelt under the stars, unhindered by the pent cabin, reciting my plaintive call for wind and the chance to fight for my life. The morning following, I rose, knowing there would be wind. It was another morning of stark calm. A desolate, sun-glaring sea glowered at me as I claim on deck. I took one look around, murmured, still calm, and once more cut the water ration to barely more than half a pint. Four days of continual dead wind. Twenty-two days since my last morsel of food. Forty-seven days since the hurricane, according to the X's on the bulkhead and the closest land and estimated ten days away. That was the sober tally I made that morning. I tried to scribble it into the front page of my Bible with the one pencil aboard so it could live to explain in case I couldn't, but I didn't put it in. I tried, but I couldn't. My brain was foggy, the foggiest yet. I couldn't think of a suitable way, so I pushed it aside and stared out the porthole. A slight swell was rolling in from the south, intimating that somewhere at least there was wind. I struggled onto the deck house remembering suddenly that for the last two days I had forgotten to look for land. As usual there was no land, only the sea fowl screaming dejectedly. A loud scratching noise came to my ear. At first I thought it was the foot deep water in the cabin, then realised that it came from the planking on the outside. Over the rail I saw a large sea turtle scratching at the hull with a discoloured flipper. He was an olive green shade, patterned across the back with squares. I felt I shouldn't risk my small store of energy in a fruitless contest with him. I stared for a while at his pawing at the planks. I remembered the sea turtle I had harpooned in the Galapagos. I thought of the meat and blood in this one. I threw judgment to the winds, and the fight was on. I crept astern and found the pronged spear with which I had formerly tried for triggerfish. I trembled with excitement as I made a lunge to harpoon the big tortoise. But my strength was gone. The spear struck and skidded across his leathery shell. He plunged, swam under the keel, and came up near the rudder. I groped along the deck to the transom and knelt over him, sighting him along the spear. I jabbed at him three times successively, but failed to penetrate that tough, hide-like shell. My strength was so far gone that even this effort had me puffing. As a last result, I laid the spear aside and made an attempt to pull the turtle aboard by grabbing him. I fitted both hands under his shell and strained to raise him to the deck. I was never weaker. I couldn't even hold him from swimming away. With a few movements of his flippers, he made progress a beam, nearly pulling me in. In consternation, I teetered on the railless deck edge, kicking for balance, fumbling disconnectedly. If I fell in, I knew I would sink like a rock fleshless and bony as I was even if I could grasp the sides I wouldn't have the strength to claw myself aboard and the sharks I had seen what the sharks could do I released my grip on him in the nick of time and avoided falling in by throwing myself flat and backwards aboard with my legs flying I ran my knee against the fish spear sitting up I found that one of the rusted forks had embedded itself an inch under my kneecap a burning pain attended it the kind that gave strong hint of more pain to come. I pulled the spear point out and watched a single drop of black blood emerge. I couldn't afford to lose that drop of life. I wiped it off with my finger and smeared it on my tongue and watched for more. None came. Blood was too dense to flow. I laid back on the deck and stayed there for over an hour, too tired to stand. Finally, I got up. When I looked for the turtle, he was gone. It was strange that a sea so calm could hide anything. I heard the water slopping in the bilge and walked back to have a look. Water was over a foot deep inside. A hopeless task of pumping. I pumped till I was exhausted, making tiny two-inch strokes. Then I waded below to bed down. My knee throbbed. The bilge water babbled like jabbering women as it flowed to and fro. I eased off to sleep. At noon... Water in my bunk awakened me and drove me out to the pump. The calm still held. Birds spiralled overhead, screeching raucously. In the sea, the dolphin moved in disconsolate circles. I gave up ever seeing a wind. After pumping till my arm failed to respond to my wish to lower the depth of the bilge water, I lowered my swollen feet and puffed knee into the flooded cabin. At a later hour, when ordinarily I should have gone on deck to pump out, I couldn't go. I was aware of the need, but I couldn't drive myself. My knee hurt. I lay watching the up-creeping water, knowing that each minute I languished there meant heartbreaking work later. It was easier to fall asleep. Later still, with the sun dangling over the horizon, I was startled awake by water pouring into my bunk. Pagan was listing badly. My first thought was that I had allowed too much water to leak in. She's tipping, I thought overloaded, sinking. I expected her every moment to turn turtle and wanted to run on deck but could only sit up slowly. I couldn't think quickly enough to decide what to do. I climbed out of my bunk into water past my calves. Limping to deck, I was amazed to see the mast healing before a fresh wind. It was about force five out of the south, working pagan beautifully, shoving her westward and to land. My spirits skyrocketed. Movement. At last, I was on the way to land. I felt better. My old optimism returned. Consulting the map, I estimated I was about 10 days from the closest land, the pestilence-ridden New Hebrides. I refused to consider how I was going to keep my boat pumped from hour to hour on my remaining margin of strength. I would wait and tackle each problem as it came. I pumped the bilges for as long as the muscles were willing but because my knee was swelling and pulsating, I couldn't bend it enough to go back below. That night, I slept in the cockpit. Four times during the spanking night, I rose to pump the bilges. My knee grew worse, and I was at a loss what to do. I bathed it in salt water, but the pressure of my fingers made it pain. At daylight, I lay my hand on the cockpit, murmuring my morning supplications. I prayed as every day I had prayed. I ended my prayer as always, and thou will's it, There will be land. I looked across the bows, and there, not three miles distant, lay an island. I could only stare dumbly. I didn't shout, and I didn't jump. Too many disappointments had dulled my sense of appreciation. I just looked at the lump of land, coloured in around its shores with fat greenery, and shaping away to its flat crest with deeply graved volcanic rock. I had no idea what land it was. And I didn't care. It was land. According to my questionable calculations, I should have been more than a week off land, the New Hebrides. But here it was. I didn't care if it was Timbuktu or Shangri-La. It was land, and I wasn't going to miss it. Well, that's the end of this episode of Rare Nautical Reads. I hope you enjoyed it. If you have any aspirations to get out on the water yourself, find out what it's like to get beyond the horizon, out of sight of land. Go over to SpartanOceanRacing.com. That's the company that I started seven years ago, which gives sailors of all ages, all backgrounds and all skill levels the opportunity to get onto 60 and 80 foot boats with professional crew and find out how to safely and effectively take on a long distance offshore passage if you can't get out on the water you can go over to patreon.com forward slash the mariner and there you'll find all the podcasts you'll find blogs you'll find gear reviews and also the spartan online seamanship training syllabus which we've been working on now for over a year this means every month we put out a 45 minute to one hour video very nitty-gritty very in detail looking at exactly how you complete tasks on the boat how systems work, how to navigate, electronic gear, dealing with problems, fixing things, the engine, it's all in there. Um, The last, I guess, is YouTube. If you go over to YouTube, forward slash The Mariner, also lots of stuff going on there and lots more of the video blogs there when we're out at sea, moving around in these boats and you can see what we're up to. So don't let it just be in the stories, connect with us on social media, connect with us um, on the water and make it a reality for yourself. Wherever you are, whatever you're doing, I hope you're safe and sound and look forward to sailing with you soon. Cheers!